We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. episode 554 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, April 20th, 2023. It is 420. (laughs) Happy 420 to those who celebrate. Hey, if you're a Washington, D.C. sports fan, you need to be doing a whole lot of what is done on 420 in order to, shall we say, numb the pain. You know, we had major breaking news on Wednesday evening. The Wizards announcing the firing of President and General Manager Tommy Shepard. And then what happened on Wednesday night? The guy who Tommy gifted to the Los Angeles Lakers via trade this past January, Rui Hachimura. The Wizards dealt him for pennies on the dollar. That guy, he on Wednesday night became the first Lakers player to score at least 20 points as a reserve in back-to-back playoff games since Magic Johnson, as in future Commander's minority owner, Magic Johnson, in 1996. Rui did what had not been done since Magic in 1996. Now, the Lakers did lose a 103-93 loss at the Memphis Grizzlies to even that first round series in the NBA playoffs at one, but Rui Hachimura in 32 minutes, one second off the bench, had 20 points, five rebounds, and two assists versus no turnovers. Happy 420. Numb the pain. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. Smith. Hello and welcome to this Thursday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Coming up on the show, I will react to the Wizards' surprising firing of Tommy Shepard. Surprising, not because Tommy had done some bang-up job, but because the Wizards aren't exactly known for, shall we say, acting with urgency. Perhaps, finally, there is some urgency with our NBA team. Perhaps, finally, the Wizards are waking up to having been mired in mediocrity and having been going nowhere for 40 plus years. But I also on this show have a lot of commander's conversation for you. Next segment, the latest in the sale of the team, including surreal audio of Brian Davis from an interview that he did on Wednesday morning. Brian Davis, he supposedly has a $7 billion cash offer 
to buy the commanders. He definitely has a highly questionable business past. I think that he's a total corny, uh, but wait until you hear what he said on Wednesday morning. We have some scheduled fun coming up. Uh, in addition, by the way, to where we stand with Joe Gibbs. Yes, as in the greatest head coach in Redskins history, Joe Gibbs potentially joining the Josh Harris group in buying the Commanders. Unfortunately, it does not appear as if this is a thing, but uh, man, that would be quite nice. Uh, And then I have a good guess for you. Dan Pizzuta, writer and editor for Sharp Football Analysis, which has come out with a piece breaking down the Commanders as they get set for the 2023 NFL Draft. Prepare yourself for some high-level Commanders football conversation as we will get into the Commanders quarterback situation, whether they should draft Tennessee quarterback Hendon Hooker, whether they should be open to taking Texas running back Bijan Robinson in the first round, uh, how likely Washington having a second consecutive season of good pass defense for the first time in like forever is, and a lot more. Uh, Dan Pizzuta of Sharp Football Analysis. He will provide us with Sharp Commanders analysis coming up. And I will talk Nationals versus Orioles. A two-game sweep of the Nats by the O's at Nationals Park was completed on Wednesday night. A 4-0 Orioles win as the O's shut out the Nats in each of the two games in this series. Uh, Boy, the Nats just cannot hit at all. Uh, the O's on Wednesday night got a very good performance from starter Kyle Bradish in his return from the 15-day injured list, though. The Nats on Wednesday night did get another nice outing from starter Mackenzie Gore. I tell you, if you're a Nats fan, Mackenzie Gore, to me, is the number one positive of this Nats season so far. Additionally, I am going to talk about the report from the Washington Post on Wednesday afternoon that Capitals, Wizards, and Mystics owner Ted Leonsis late last year offered more than $2 billion to buy the Nats. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Devin Bradley on the sale of the Commanders. And if you are familiar with the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you will appreciate this email. (laughs) Writes Devin, at Mass this past weekend, the lyrics to a popular hymn changed. Could you hear it? Rejoice, rejoice, no da ah, ah, niel <laughs> He's selling the team, and all will be well. Thank you for the email, Devin. Well done, my friend. Uh, email from Joe in Silver Spring, Maryland, on the sale of the Commanders, and on the Mega Money contract extension for Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts. Writes Joe, I'm as glad as anyone to hear that Dan Snyder is actually selling the team, as I never thought that that would happen. However, I, for one, will be holding off on the celebrations until the deal is signed. I just don't feel the relief and excitement yet, and I don't think that I will until the deal is officially done. And while we should all be thrilled that the Denny will no longer be around, uh, we also have no idea if the new owner will be able to put together a consistent winning franchise. We can hope but only time will tell. Another thing that only time will tell about is Jalen Hurts' massive contract extension. Yes, he absolutely played very well during the 2022 season, and the future looks bright for him. But if I was an Eagles fan right now, I am not sure I would be so excited about the deal. It seems premature and a huge gamble. 
The dude has had one incredible season. Sure, maybe he's the real deal, the next Josh Allen, and continues to play at a high level for years to come. Or maybe he has had the best season of his career already. It certainly looks that may be the case with Lamar Jackson. I don't think that anyone can know the answer, but I, for one, would have liked to have seen him put together two excellent seasons back-to-back before handing him all of that guaranteed money. Uh, Thank you for the email, Joe. Uh, I hear you on holding off on the relief and excitement on Dan Snyder selling the commanders until the deal is officially done, but I do think that it's okay to feel the relief and excitement right now. I mean, an agreement on the sale has been reached, and that agreement has been sent to the NFL. It is true that the deal isn't 100% done until it is 100% done, and it is true that you never freaking know with Dan. <laughs> but there now is overwhelming reason to believe that this sale is happening. And by the way, I'm basing that not just on things that have been reported, but uh, also on things that I've been told off the record. Uh, As far as Jalen Hurts, yeah, he has only had one great season. So it's not wrong to wonder if he already has peaked and uh, will not prove worthy of this contract extension. So much of sports, as in life, is not what but when. Jalen Hurts' great 2022 season was the third season of his four-year rookie contract. Outstanding timing. Uh, You know, had his breakout season been his first or second NFL season, then the Eagles would have had the luxury of a larger sample size before deciding whether to pay him. But because his breakout season was his third NFL season and the Eagles this coming season do not want him being in a contract season, he got paid this offseason. Timing is everything, just like with Deron Payne, uh, that his best NFL season was this past season, the fifth and final season of his rookie contract. That resulted in him getting a mega money contract extension from the commanders this past March. Uh, Deron Payne went from being a good but also inconsistent player over his first four NFL seasons to becoming the second highest paid interior defensive lineman in NFL history in terms of average annual value, AAV. Again, timing is everything. And with that as a truth, now is a great time to advertise your business or practice on this podcast. Uh, The cost is low, the payoff is high. Advertising your business or practice on the pod will grow your business or practice and make you more money. Podcast advertising is very affordable. You very much get a bang for your buck. And podcast advertising works. Email us, see what we can do for you. The email address is the Al Galdi Podcast at yahoo.com. Well, a few things on the sale of the Commanders before we get to our guest, Dan Pizzuta, writer and editor for Sharp Football Analysis on the Commanders as they prepare for the 2023 NFL Draft. Uh, The Washington Post on Wednesday morning reported that the NFL's informal review of the agreement between Dan Snyder and Josh Harris has found no major issues with the terms of the deal. Uh, though other matters related to the sale uh, still must be resolved before the sale is finalized. Uh, Those other issues include questions pertaining to legal indemnification of Dan uh, and to the results of the Mary Jo White investigation. But yeah, the NFL is liking what it is seeing from this agreement between Dan Snyder and Josh Harris, by which a group led by Harris would buy the commanders from Dan for $6.05 billion. Now, one of the things that's going to really start to merge here is who the other investors in the Josh Harris group are. 
Uh, Assistant Managing Editor Michael Zanian of Forbes Media, he on Tuesday evening came out with a piece with a detailed breakdown of the Josh Harris Group's bid for the Commanders. So Zanian reported that Harris would own 30% of the Commanders and be the managing partner, and that there would be 17 limited partners, including Washington, D.C. area billionaire Mitchell Rails at 12% and NBA legend Magic Johnson at 4%. WUSA 9 Sports Director Darren Haynes, he on Tuesday afternoon reported that Mark Ein is part of the Josh Harris Group. Uh, Mark Ein is the owner of the Washington Castles, which is Washington, D.C.'s team in world team tennis. Uh, Ozanian was on B. Mitch and Findlay on 106.7 The Fan on Wednesday morning, and Ozanian said that he has heard that Joe Gibbs might be one of the 17 limited partners, but Commander's Insider John Keim of ESPN on Wednesday afternoon tweeted, quote, was told by a source that Joe Gibbs is not part of the Harris Group as an investor. He is close to Harris and has provided insight slash counsel End quote. So, wah wah. <laughs> uh, the greatest head coach in Redskins history, Joe Gibbs, apparently is not part of the Josh Harris group, although he does have a relationship with Harris. Uh, that is notable. You know, it seems like everyone uses the great Joe Gibbs as an advisor, doesn't it? Commander's head coach Rod Rivera has talked about leaning on Joe for advice. Uh, Josh Harris is getting advice from Joe. Heck, our outgoing Commander's co-owner and co-CEO Dan Snyder, he has leaned on Joe. Uh, Joe Gibbs, as a minority owner of the Commanders, would have been great. Look, I'm not a huge proponent of the constant nostalgia with the team and the constant, you know, idea of trying to go back to the glory years. But if you have to have 17 limited partners, having one of them be maybe the single most important person in the history of the franchise, maybe even in the history of Washington, D.C. sports, is not a bad thing. Uh, The public relations uh, value would be huge. But You know, you do the math on the Josh Harris group. So it's buying the commanders for this reported $6.05 billion. An NFL ownership group in buying a team is allowed to take on a maximum of $1.1 billion in debt. So let's just assume that the Josh Harris group is taking on that maximum amount of debt. So you subtract the 1.1 from the 6.05, that gets us to 4.95. Josh Harris at 30%. Mitchell Rails at 12%, and Magic Johnson at 4%. That adds up to 46% of ownership. So the back of the envelope math would have the other 15 limited partners accounting for 54% of the ownership. Uh, 54% of $4.95 billion is $2.673 billion. That's a lot of money coming from 15 other people. So it is going to be interesting to see who these other 15 people are. Uh, Meantime, speaking of money, (laughs) uh, Brian Davis, the former Duke basketball player, the former NBA player, the former part owner of DC United, uh, the guy who supposedly has a $7 billion cash offer to buy the commanders, the guy who also has a sketchy, shady business past. Uh, Brian Davis now is making some media appearances. And by the way, that right there is a red flag because bidders for the commanders supposedly signed NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. But a big thing with Davis has been whether he has this money, let alone in cash. Uh, We on Tuesday show, episode 552, spoke with NFL insider Arif Hassan of Pro Football Network. Uh, Arif gave us a tremendous breakdown of Davis's sketchy, shady business past. Uh, Then sports business insider A.J. Perez of Front Office Sports, he on Tuesday morning reported that Davis somehow having $7 billion in cash to buy the commanders may have to do with connections to the Middle East. 
Quote, there are indications that the source of the funds originated from the Middle East. Two sources with firsthand knowledge of the bid told front office sports on condition of anonymity. Davis and his associates have been cagey about the source of the funds that they claim are backing the bid. One member of Davis's camp told FOS that at least some of the funding is coming from Israel. The other source outside of Davis's inner circle said those involved in the process believe the true source of the funds is Saudi Arabia. End quote. Well, Davis on Wednesday morning was on the Sports Junkies on 106.7 The Fan. He said a lot of things, but the best, most entertaining thing that he said came via this exchange. Here you go. I have have $20 billion in my holding company through my business. That's a fact. Whether you believe it or not, Mm -hmm. it's up to you. Okay, but I don't want to... It's the NFL's job to make that decision. I don't want want people to, to issue statements about me having Saudi money or any of these things that are not accurate. My money comes from white people. White people. <laughs> I don't even white, know what that means, but white okay. People. <laughs> white people. Let, no, let me finish. Let yeah. me finish. White right, people who are Jewish, who are Italian, who are Sicilian. White people. Right. And, and the NFL will find that out. It comes from white people. Those are my partners. White people. All right. Quote, my money comes from white people who are Jewish who are Italian, who are Sicilian, white people, and the NFL will find that out. It comes from white people. Those are my partners, white people, end quote. (laughs) That, my friends, may be the number one thing that has been said or written at any point in this saga that is the sale of the commanders. Quote, my money comes from white people who are Jewish, who are Italian, who are Sicilian, white people, and the NFL will find that out. It comes from white people. Those are my partners, white people, end quote. Uh, I listened to Brian Davis's appearance with the junkies. He came off like a liar. He came off like a con man. He came off like a fraud. I don't pretend to know Brian Davis or his finances, okay? And I guess you always have to leave that 0.001% chance that he is telling the truth and that he does end up buying the commanders, okay? Because we don't have all of the information. But I know enough about him and I have heard and read enough about his supposed $7 billion cash offer for the commanders to wear. I do not trust him, not for one second. He, to me, is fake news. Brian Davis is the Jussie Smollett of the sale of the commanders, okay? Brian Davis is the Jussie Smollett of the sale of the commanders. And here is the best part from everything that happened on Wednesday. WUSA 9 chief investigative reporter Eric Flack, he on Wednesday afternoon tweeted the following, quote, on March 27th, days after putting in a $7 billion bid to buy the Washington commanders, Davis and his company, Urban Echo, were sued (laughs) for failing to repay $322,000 in loans from a D.C. man. Davis says Urban Echo is the source of his wealth. He is yet to respond to the court summons, end quote. So Brian Davis, whose sketchy, shady business past includes a number of lawsuits, now is being sued again. And this lawsuit came just days after he put in his $7 billion bid to buy the commander's One more time, Jesse Smollett. Uh, I hope that this is the last time that we talk about Brian Davis, although I have to say there is an entertainment value in his old deal, okay? There is. And hey, just remember these two key words, white people.
my money comes from white people. White people. <laughs> I don't even white, know what that means, but white okay. People. <laughs> white people. Let, no, let me finish. Let yeah. me finish. White right, people <laughs> who are Jewish, who are Italian, who are Sicilian. White people. Right. And, and the NFL will find that out. It comes from white people. Those are my partners. White people. Yes, thank you, Brian Davis. Thank you, Brian Smollett. If nothing else, you have entertained us. Uh, I cannot wait (laughs) until this sale of the Commanders is officially over. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Well, this episode of the Al Galdi podcast is for Thursday, April 20th. One week away are we from the first round of the 2023 NFL Draft. Uh, The first round is on Thursday night, April 27th. The commanders in the 2023 draft have eight picks. The number 16 overall pick, a second round pick, a third round pick, a fourth round pick, a fifth round pick, two sixth round picks, and a seventh round pick. One of the best NFL analytics sites is Sharp football analysis, which is run by the great Warren Sharp, an NFL analytics pioneer and a friend of this podcast. Uh, Sharp football analysis has been putting out these excellent deep dives on NFL teams in preparation for the draft. And coming out this past Tuesday was the Sharp football analysis deep dive on the commanders. Headline, Washington Commanders Draft Needs for 2023. And the piece has a lot of interesting research. Uh, Consider this from Sharp Football Analysis on the Commanders. They have the sixth hardest schedule for the 2023 regular season. And 
I'm a big fan of the methodology that Warren Sharp uses for schedule strength. Vegas forecasted win totals. So we're not going off last season's records. We're not going off statistical projections for the coming season. Uh, We are going off what the wise guys, the Sharps, no pun intended, believe. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Dan Pizzuta, writer and editor for Sharp Football Analysis. Uh, Dan also is writing the Commander's Chapter for Football Outsiders Almanac 2023. You can follow him on Twitter, at Dan Pizzuta, which is spelled P-I-Z-Z-U-T-A. Dan, it's nice to talk to you again. How are you? Ah, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing well. Good to have you back on. So I just want to ask you a bunch of questions about what Sharp Football Analysis has on our Commander's heading into the 2023 draft. The Commander's have a Sharp draft value rank of 16th in the NFL. So right in the middle of the league, 16th out of 32 teams, uh, sharp draft value rank is defined as a valuation of draft capital on a combination of average performance delivered and average dollars earned on second contracts. Uh, Expound, if you would, on sharp draft value rank and its significance, because I think that this is a really interesting concept. Yeah, it's basically like there's a lot of different, you know, draft value charts that have uh, gone on. And the, the way the, the sharp uh, draft value is, it's it's a combination of a couple of, of the different ones. So it's kind of taking uh, some of the, you know, the Chase Stewart football perspective that has uh, approximate value. So actual player value, uh, it takes in some of the. Uh, charts that have some of the salary uh, in them. So it's kind of combining a a little bit of everything. So it's using a draft value on uh, actual player value on the field, also including some of the, you know, contractual value that's, you know, been talked about so often now, uh, especially when you look at, you know, some of the, you know, contractual value at the top of the draft. So it's, it's combining a bunch of different uh, draft value charts that have been in there and then kind of just puts it into one. So when it comes to trades in NFL drafts, uh, something like the sharp draft value rank is better to look at than, say, the traditional Jimmy Johnson NFL draft trade chart. Yeah, I I think so. And I think it's a way to get a better actual real life value. Uh, I think in uh, I looked at some of the trades last year during the draft time doing it. It's it's always going to be a weird thing to do that because there are teams that still are using the old Jimmy Johnson charts for to put together actual trades. Um, But then we look at, you know, some, uh, there are more analytical looking teams that everyone has their different trade values, but I think they still use the, the original Jimmy Johnson one or something close to it because that's something everyone can agree on. But then I think you kind of look at, you know, a, a team like the Vikings last year when they traded with, um, the Lions, uh, it was something that was the Jimmy Johnson chart didn't like a lot when when they traded down. They didn't get kind of as much value as you looked at. But if you look at kind of some more modern charts, uh, it was a very even trade uh, for both of those teams. So I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more of those. So I think this kind of the, the blend of some of these other trade values will, will give you a little more actual, you know, real value for what's happening. The biggest difference between the modern NFL draft trade charts and the Jimmy Johnson one would be the factoring in of contract value. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm sure there there are teams doing that. Even if you look at you know some of the what Chase Stewart did at Football Perspective, one of the kind of the first really public um, modern 
trade value charts was just using uh, approximate value from pro football reference. Uh, and even that was just kind of had more player value and what actual the picks are worth because the, the Jimmy Johnson chart was just basically based on draft trades that were up until that point of the uh, of that chart. So um, it wasn't really based on a lot of, you know, future value or projecting what some of these players at these picks would be. It was just kind of, you know, uh, you know, backtracking what trades had been up to that point. Uh, so I think we are a little better now, but I still think we kind of have a, these teams are still kind of basing a lot of it on something closer to the Jimmy Johnson chart when they're actually making trades. All right. The commander's offense, uh, the advanced stats for the commander's offense for last season are brutal. Uh, the team's offense last season was bad for a fourth consecutive season. Quarterback remains the thing. We all know that. Uh, head coach Rod Rivera is positioning Sam Howell to be the team's QB1, uh, but also is saying that there will be a competition with Jacoby Brissett, who the team signed as an unrestricted free agent in March. I'm actually excited about Sam Howell, but I also think that the team should be open to taking a quarterback on day one or day two of this 2023 draft. That said, is it realistic to think that Sam Howell or Jacoby Brissett could be good enough for the Commanders to be a playoff team this coming season? We all, as Commanders fans, hope that that is the case, but someone like yourself with a national NFL perspective, that outlook, is that realistic or not really? I think it's in the range of outcomes. It's probably not something the commander should be, you know, betting on and saying that we're definitely going to be a playoff team with this. But I think especially, you know, you look at Jacoby Brissett and if he's the the worst option of the two, uh, you look at what he did with Cleveland last year and even in, you know, his his other stops, uh, you know, he was you know decent in uh, Indianapolis when he was kind of thrown in. He, he's been good uh, enough. So it, it kind of just depends on what that structure of the offense now is. Um, and obviously it's, it's going to be a little better, be a little more, you know, opened up with Eric B enemy. Um, but, you know, Brissett at least brings a baseline of it, at least an average to above average uh, a quarterback. If he's there, that's good. If Sam Howell does beat him out, you know, he has a little bit, he could be a, a Daniel Jones uh, type in a way that, you know, you're, you're using some of his, athleticism a little bit to, to move him around and he was able to run in college uh, a little bit so you know he showed some things during his you know, couple of starts um so i think if, if you can get away with you know average to a uh, slightly above average quarterback play sure because there is still some you know skill position talent that is here that hasn't really been, you know, used to its full potential because of the quarterback play. Um, so it, it's not a very high bar to clear for what quarterback play has been in Washington over the past, you know, couple of years. Uh, so if you have that with uh, a, a good defense that hopefully should continue uh, to go on, then then maybe they, they could be uh, around that area. The commanders on Tuesday had a pre-draft visit with Tennessee quarterback Hendon Hooker. Uh, his stock does seem to be rising, although a lot of that may well just be gamesmanship from teams. But monster numbers for Tennessee the last two seasons. But also, he's coming off a torn left ACL that he suffered this past November 19th. And he played in an offense at Tennessee in which he did not have to do much in the way of pre-snap reading and post-snap processing of information. Where are you on Hendon Hooker as an NFL prospect? 
I haven't been the biggest Hendon Hooker fan in terms of, you know, where he's probably going to go, uh, especially because, you know, he's not, shouldn't be one of these top part of the first round guys. But then you, when you look at what he would potentially be as a developmental guy, he's already, you know, going to be 25 years old, you know, coming off that ACL. That's not exactly what you want in a developmental guy either. You would probably want one of these younger guys. There's probably not a great draft for these you know middle to late round developmental guys either. Um, so yeah, he's a, he's a tough one for me because he, he did put up, you know, some really good numbers um, in that offense. But if you kind of look at where he was, you know, accuracy wise, it, it wasn't, great, especially when you compare it to, you know, kind of quarterback uh, prospects of the past. Uh, I've seen him. Uh, there's some like Jalen Hurts comparisons now, but uh, Jalen Hurts was a much more accurate thrower um, in in college uh, than Hooker was, even though they kind of, you know, you can say they played in college systems, but you no, know, Hooker was even more so uh, to that point. So uh, if you're looking at that, I'm not totally sure there's an upside for Washington going with a, a Hendon Hooker type um, over, you know, seeing what Sam Howell might be for a year. I still think if you're going to go in the Hooker direction, I think, you know, seeing what Howell and Brissett would be for, for a year or so is probably the, the, the better option and, and reset for next year. We're talking with Dan Pizzuta, writer and editor for Sharp Football Analysis, about the Commanders as they prepare for the 2023 NFL Draft. Uh, The Commanders' top two running backs are Brian Robinson Jr. and Antonio Gibson. Gibson is headed into the fourth and final season of his rookie contract. There has been a good bit of discussion about the Commanders potentially taking Texas running back Bijan Robinson in the first round. Uh, I am against that, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's tough. Um, it you can say it depends on you know the the team and the the situation you're going into. Uh, but even when you look at that, the, that was what the Chiefs had with Clyde Edwards-Helaire when they took him. It was a luxury pick. They had everything else you know figured out, uh, and then that's a pick that that didn't quite work. And obviously, I, I think. Even Clyde Edwards Hilaire and Bijan Robinson are probably um, you know, two different types of prospects. I think Robinson is much better, but um it's tough. But it's I think when you look at Washington especially, I don't know if this would be a running game that is completely fixed by a running back, right? When you look at what the the offensive line was, and that's where I think a lot of these teams uh kind of find themselves, a team that needs more of a running game probably could use some offensive line that's been a, a bills thing for a while there's a lot of people in buffalo who've been clamoring for a high-end running back but the offensive line is not a very good run blocking line it's the same thing in, in washington last year they were 27th in yards before contact uh per rush so that's not something a, a running back is really going to fix um so i, I think what Washington could probably, you know, fix some things, and they have. They've signed uh, a couple of offensive linemen. They could probably still draft one in the first round. But I think fixing that offensive line a little bit, and then maybe especially in this running back class, there are some good running backs, and that's one of the reasons why taking a running back in the first round doesn't work quite as well, is because there are usually so many good running backs, um, and and it really does look like in this draft you're going to find guys on day two and even day three uh, who you could probably put in if you're getting better blocking up front. That's probably going to help the running game as a whole more. Well said. Uh, I'm totally with you. The commander's offensive line last season was really bad. And this is a big part of why a lot of mock drafts have the commanders taking an offensive lineman in the first round. Uh, The commanders do have a strong top three at receiver in Terry McLaurin, Jahan Dodson, 
and Curtis Samuel. I'm just curious, uh, in the modern NFL, uh, with quarterback as the obvious number one most important position, which position group to you is the second most important position group on offense? Offensive line or receiver? You know, that that's tough because I it somewhat, I think, plays into what type of quarterback you have and what type of offense uh, you want to run. Uh, if you're going to, you know, want to get the ball out quickly, I think, you know, offensive line, there's a ways to get around that. I think it's hard, probably harder to scheme around a lack of talent at a wide receiver. I think we kind of saw the, the Giants do it uh, a little bit uh, last year, but I think that that's much harder to sustain. Um, so I, I would say having, you know, a, a deeper wide receiver room is probably, you know, uh, slightly more important. Uh, but again, if you are just a, a team with an, an offensive line that can't block anyone, that's going to, to derail you also. So it's it's hard. It kind of, you know, depends on the offense uh, a little bit. So I think when you look at what, you know, if you look at Washington right now, I have a, a very good you know, top three guys, um, you know, it, there's still some new questions about what the future of that is going to be with, you know, Curtis Samuel final year, um, no guaranteed money left on, on his deal for 2023 anyway. Um, but you look at that, you, you probably want a little more of an, an offensive line for Washington to, to help out and uh, get some more things happening down the field. You mentioned Curtis Samuel, who is entering the third season of a three-year unrestricted free agent contract that he signed with Washington in March 2021. Sharp Football Analysis writes, quote, 25% of his targets came behind the line of scrimmage, the fifth highest rate among receivers who ran at least 300 routes in 2022. His 6.7 air yards per target was 82nd among the 88 receivers in that group. He was 30th in yards after the catch, which is respectable, but not great for someone who is used and paid the way he is, end quote. Should teams spend significant money and or draft capital on receivers who are used this way, or should the significant money and draft capital spent on receivers be for receivers who are downfield targets? Yeah, I... It's certainly in that way. Samuel is an interesting case because, uh, and I think we wrote about this on the site when he signed with Washington. Um, he had a, a very you know specific role with the Panthers under Scott Turner, and then after Turner left and it was Joe Brady, they kind of figured out how to use Curtis Samuel a little more. And he was getting targeted a little more down the fields. And then he came to Washington with uh, Turner again, and they kind of put him back in the old role that wasn't quite as efficient. So I'm interested to see what he's going to be this year. But yeah, in, in general, I would like your, your receivers to get, you know, a more, even, even the short area, the intermediate area, I think we're starting to see the intermediate area is really the most valuable place um, in, in football right now, the most efficient. Um, so uh, receivers who can win there, and that's where you know Terry McCorin's uh, won so often. That's where he is great. Um, so I am interested to see what this Samuel role could potentially be because he has the ability uh, to be that receiver. It kind of seems like he gets pigeonholed a, a little bit, especially in the offense that they were in. Um, so I think to, to get the most of him, you'll, you'll probably want him to you know go. And I think that was part of you know the offensive line again, where you're trying to get these screens and and kind of get the ball out quickly um, and, and all of that. So I think Samuel can do a little more and you especially like him to for, like you said, a, a receiver who's you know getting paid what he is. 
as I said, you are writing the commander's chapter for Football Outsiders Almanac 2023. Uh, one of the great lessons from Football Outsiders has been the plexiglass principle. Uh, the plexiglass principle states that an NFL team that significantly improves or declines in a phase of the game in one season tends to see the opposite with that phase the following season, basically because significant improvement and significant decline tend to be functions, at least in part, of luck and circumstance. Uh, Washington's pass defense over the last few seasons has perfectly abided by the plexiglass principle. Bad in 2019, good in 2020, bad in 2021, good in 2022. How do we make it so that the pass defense, again, is good in 2023? Like, how likely is a second consecutive season of the team having a good pass defense? Yeah, that's that's tough. That that's the question, right? And and I wrote the Washington chapter after the 2020 season when when they were good again, and I was kind of projecting, you know, this this defense might not be you know quite as good as as we thought it was uh, the previous season. So yeah, they've been up and down. It's it's interesting because they have you know kind of they found a way to to piece some things together because I think last year I actually ended up being this was a defense that was I think. Uh, the whole was kind of better than the the parts individually because there there weren't a lot of standout uh, pieces. Uh, but I think they kind of eventually played uh, very well together. Uh, and I think you kind of look at what this defense is going to be now. I think it kind of depends on the health of Chase Young. If you can have you know two dominant edge rushers um, in a way that they haven't really had since they brought him in um, and kind of hoped. Um, I think you'd kind of like uh, a little bit more added to the secondary, maybe in the, you know, uh, day two uh, of this draft here, because, you know, you, you lose some pieces a little bit. I think uh, Bobby McCain, just kind of the role he played is might be hard to to fill um, a little bit, but even, you know, you have a, a Cam Curl who continues to, to break out um, and and be good. Um, you know, you, there are, are some pieces that you can be excited with, you know, being a top 10 defense again. I think that that might be uh, a little tough, especially if you know the the division, um, the offenses are getting a, a little better. Um, so it, it's hard, especially because you haven't had really a, a track record of being great. It's been uh, up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, so. It, it is a place where they they do some interesting things. They were strangely you know, had the seventh highest rate of of dime personnel last year, so I think they were kind of adjusting and, and figuring out some ways as you know pieces were uh, on and off the field uh, a little bit. So uh, they better coaching than I would have thought to give them credit for in twenty twenty two. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, it's going to be great again in twenty twenty three. Uh, I had Warren Sharp on the podcast last summer, and what he said about defense in today's NFL is that as long as a team isn't really bad on defense, the team can have great success. Obviously, you want to be good on defense, but even if you're just okay, that can be good enough to have significant success. You just want to avoid being really bad. Uh, Is that how you view defense in the NFL right now? Right. I think there, there's a give and take uh, a little bit here, and it kind of depends on how the offense is, right? Uh, you, you should always you know, want to have a, a great offense, uh, but sometimes that's just not going to be uh, the reality of what a team does. So for Washington, their way to compete probably this year is to have a you know, maybe hopefully above average offense, but that defense is probably going to have to be really good, especially if you're going in with a Sam Howell and Jacoby Brissett. As much as we said, like they can, you know, 
have an okay range of outcomes at quarterback, you know, you're probably not going to be a top five offense with what's going on right there. So you're probably going to need the defense to be really good. Um, you know, if you're building a team from scratch and what is going to, you know, potentially be as something that sustains over a longer period of time, yes, you would like that offense to be, you know, one of the better units in the league uh, and a, a defense that, you know, can just not lose you games. And that's probably uh, the easiest way to project what a team is going to be. But obviously it kind of comes down to whatever the realities of, of some of these rosters are. Uh, and for Washington, being a pretty good defense is probably half going to have have to be how they would compete, at least in 2023. Makes sense. Dan Pazuta, writer and editor for Sharp Football Analysis. Dan, thanks a lot. All the best. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Well, Ted Leonsis's monumental sports and entertainment empire has had quite the last few days. This past Friday evening, the Capitals announced that the team and head coach Peter Laviolette had, quote, mutually agreed to part ways, end quote. And on Wednesday evening, the Wizards announced that Tommy Shepard had been, quote, released as president and general manager of the Washington Wizards, end quote. Don't say fired. <laughs> he was released. Uh, the Peter Laviolette news wasn't exactly surprising. This Tommy Shepard news was surprising. With Laviolette, there had been reporting that he might not be brought back, especially with his contract as Caps head coach set to expire on June 30th. With Tommy, there had been very little out there about him potentially being fired, in part because Ted Leonsis's history is that he sticks with uh, general manager types for quite some time. Uh, see Tommy's predecessor, Ernie Grunfeld, who ended up being the second longest tenured general manager type in Bullet slash Wizards history. His tenure lasted from June 30th, 2003 to April 2nd, 2019. Here is the deal with our Wizards, and we have talked about this many times on the podcast. The Wizards have not advanced past the second round of the NBA playoffs since 1979. The team has not had a 50-win regular season since the 1978-1979 season. Those are harsh, pathetic realities. The Wizards' problems run deep. Firing Tommy Shepard or releasing Tommy Shepard is a start, no doubt. But the Wizards' problems start with the owner, Ted Leonsis. He needs to stop clinging to these ceilings of mid- And he needs to start getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. He needs to start getting comfortable with the idea of a total rebuild. Uh, The announcement on Wednesday evening of the firing of Tommy Shepard was made via a short statement attributed to the founder, principal partner, chairman, and CEO of Monumental Sports and Entertainment, Ted Leonsis. Ted cited the Wizards not making the playoffs in each of the team's last two seasons as a primary reason for firing Tommy. Quote, failure to make the playoffs the last two seasons was very disappointing to our organization and our fans. End quote. Yes. Also notable in the statement, though, was this. Quote, a search for new leadership will begin immediately for an executive from outside the organization. End quote. So the next person running Wizards basketball operations apparently will be someone from outside the organization. Uh, That is a good thing. Uh, This season was Tommy Shepard's 20th season with the Wizards. Uh, The Wizards fired team president Ernie Grunfeld on April 2nd, 2019. It's important 
to remember a few things with the aftermath of the ouster of Ernie. So he got fired on April 2nd, 2019. It was not until July 22nd, 2019 that the Wizards officially named Tommy Shepard as their general manager. Uh, The Wizards did this as part of the creation of this thing called Monumental Basketball, which uh, so far has not been so monumental. But always remember this with Tommy Shepard. He was not Ted Leonsis' first choice to succeed Ernie Grunfeld. The Wizards' top target was then Denver Nuggets president of basketball operations, Tim Connolly. But he ultimately turned down the Wizards. Uh, Connolly grew up in Baltimore, went to Catholic University in Washington, D.C. He began with the Bullets as an intern in 1996, was hired as assistant video coordinator in 1999, became a full-time scout for the Wizards in 2000, and then eventually became the Wizards director of player personnel. We, on May 17, 2019, had multiple reports that the Wizards had made an official offer to Conley to be their president of basketball operations, but we, on May 20, 2019, had multiple reports that Connolly had decided to remain with the Nuggets. Connolly now is the president of basketball operations for the Minnesota Timberwolves. There also was a lot in 2019 about the Wizards wanting Toronto Raptors president Masai Ujiri, but the Wizards' pursuit of him stalled, uh, perhaps due to tampering concerns. But the Masai Ujiri thing was quite the thing for a while. Literally minutes after the Toronto Raptors won at the Golden State Warriors in Game 6 of the 2019 NBA Finals, June 13th, 2019, uh, to win the NBA title, ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski dropped a Woj bomb. He reported that the Wizards were ready to offer Masai, quote, a deal that could approach $10 million annually and deliver him the opportunity for ownership equity, End quote. Well, the Wizards ended up not getting Masai Ujiri and, in fact, backed off on trying to get Masai. A good friend of the Al Galdi podcast, columnist Tom Lavero of the Washington Times, he had a piece that was published on June 16th, 2019, reported that, quote, according to sources, someone has sounded the tampering alarm already in the Wizards' courtship of Ujiri, forcing transparent Ted to quickly back off the hard sell. End quote. So yeah, I mean, Tommy Shepard was not Ted Leonsis's first choice to succeed Ernie Grunfeld. Uh, the Wizards, over Tommy Shepard's four seasons running the team's basketball operations, uh, made the playoffs just once, and that was in a 2020-2021 season in which the Wizards went just 34-38 and in the regular season and then did well enough in the first ever Eastern Conference play-in tournament to get the East number eight seed. Uh, The Wizards 2021-2022 team that was put together by Tommy was such a dysfunctional mess that Tommy had to make major changes come the 2022 NBA trade deadline. Uh, February 10th, 2022, what was 2022 NBA trade deadline day, uh, Tommy Shepard traded away Spencer Dinwiddie and Davies Bertans to the Dallas Mavericks and Montrez Harrell to the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, And then, of course, we had this past Wizards season, the 2022-2023 season, in which the Wizards just weren't good enough, point blank, period, despite paying 50-plus million dollars per season now to Bradley Beal via the Supermax contract to which he was re-signed last July. And then there was Tommy Shepard's drafting. Uh, Tommy's four first-round picks while running Wizards basketball operations. Nowhere near good enough. 2019 NBA draft, the Wizards took Rui Hachimura with the number nine pick. 2020 NBA draft, the Wizards took Denny Avdia with the number nine pick. 2021 NBA draft, 
The Wizards took Corey Kispert with the number 15 pick, 2022. NBA draft, the Wizards took Johnny Davis with the number 10 pick. The Wizards this past January traded Rui to the Los Angeles Lakers for pennies on the dollar. The Wizards may have something in Denny Avdia and Corey Kispert, but, you know, neither guy certainly is a special player. And Johnny Davis just had a debacle of a rookie season. There is no major pro sports team in the Washington, D.C. area that feels as hopeless as the Wizards do right now. And I say that as someone who has been a Bullet slash Wizards fan his entire life as a sports fan. I will always be a Wizards fan. Uh, I really wish the team would go back to the name Bullets, but I will always be a fan of the team. I very much want this team to be good again. Uh, There is a lot of anger and even worse apathy with the Wizards right now. I mean, the Wizards to me have become the clear number four in Washington, D.C. sports in terms of interest. When you talk about the Commanders, Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, the Wizards are the number four out of that mix. The team is in dire need of new life, new energy, and new direction. But whoever the team hires to replace Tommy Shepard, that person, yes, needs to be smart. That person, yes, needs to be good at drafting But that person needs to be allowed to do as he, or I guess she, pleases, even if that means blowing the whole thing up. And that's why, ultimately, this comes down to the owner, Ted Leonsis, becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable. Well, round one of the 2023 Battle of the Beltways went decisively in favor of the Orioles. A two-game series at Nationals Park. Tuesday night, the O's won at the Nats 1-0. Wednesday night, the O's won at the Nats 4-0. Back-to-back shutout wins for the O's at the Nats, who now are 5-13 with four shutout losses. You know, the O's came into this series with a starting pitching ERA for this regular season of 675. The Orioles starting pitching in this regular season had been horrendous, and yet the Nats got shut out in both games. Uh, The Nats on Wednesday night, no runs, just six hits, a double, and five singles, three walks. Uh, The Nats went 0 for 9 with runners in scoring position. Uh, three of the Nats' six hits came from one guy, Caper Ruiz. Uh, he is the Nats' starting catcher, number six batter, went three for four with three singles. And the double that the Nats hit, uh, that wasn't even a true double. Uh, Joey Manessis was the Nats' starting DH and number four batter. He went one for four with a double. He, in the bottom of the six, had a one-out double on a one-two pitch on a ball that got by Orioles third baseman Ramona Rios, uh, thanks to a tricky hop. That was the Nats' lone extra base hit in the game. Uh, by the way, Ramona Rios uh, started at second base, then moved to third base. Uh, the Orioles' starting shortstop, Jorge Mateo, left the game due to right hip discomfort. Uh, the O's can ill afford to lose Mateo with how well he has been playing. But the Nats on Wednesday night, once again, very little happening offensively. C.J. Abrams had a particularly rough game. He was an ad starting shortstop and number eight batter, 0 for 4 with three strikeouts and a throwing error. And his plate appearance that did not result in a strikeout resulted in a killer double play. Abrams in the bottom of the second with runners at the corners and one out grounded into a first pitch inning ending 4-6-3 double play. Uh, also, Abrams in the Orioles, one run ninth, committed a two-out throwing error as he made a uh, way too casual and high throw on a slow grounder 
off the bat of Ramon Arias. Although, let me say this, Abrams defensively has been doing a lot of good stuff. So defense really hasn't been a concern with C.J. Abrams. He is playing a good shortstop, but the offense so far has not been good. And he's young, and you got to give him plenty of room with which to grow. But the results for C.J. Abrams as a batter at the major league level with the Nats have not been good. Abrams now in this regular season, 66 plate appearances and some really ugly numbers. I mean, your C.J. Abrams slash line, batting average at 207, on base percentage at 292, slugging percentage of 310. But look, uh, the Nats need to keep him out there. He is the everyday shortstop and just got to hope that uh, these growing pains do yield uh, some bountiful results. So hopefully sooner rather than later. We'll see. He is a talented guy. Uh, now, the Nats got C.J. Abrams in the mega trade of outfielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell to the San Diego Padres last August 2nd. The Nats in that trade also got back starting pitcher Mackenzie Gore. And Gore on Wednesday night was solid. Uh, three runs in six innings. He only gave up three hits, a two-run homer, and two singles. His biggest problem was issuing four walks, but he also recorded seven strikeouts. Gore, over his six innings, threw 103 pitches, 66 strikes versus 37 balls. He had problems in the third and fourth innings. Gore, in the top of the third, allowed a run on three walks and a single, including a one-out bases-loaded walk of Adley Rutschman. And Gore, in the top of the fourth, allowed two runs on a leadoff seven-pitch walk of Anthony Santander, and then a one-out two-run homer by Adam Frazier to right field for a 3-0 Orioles lead. This was Nats manager Davey Martinez during his post-game press conference on Wednesday night on Mackenzie Gore, and then you'll hear multiple follow-up exchanges. For Mackenzie, he, he, he's a perfectionist, you know, so um, we got to get him out of that you know, if something goes bad, you know, he falls into that category where, oh, no, you know, now, hey, go get, get you know, go get that next pitch, you know, get that next hit or whatever it's going to take him to get to that. And once he feels, once he gets through a little situation, he comes back and he's strong. I mean, he really is. So um, today, he had a tough time today with the lefties. Um, gave up a home run to Frazier, you know, walked a couple lefties. Um, all he got to do is really pound the strike zone against those guys, uh, you know, and, and not lose the strike zone. Did you see from him that allowed him to like right the ship at the end? His, you know, everything you know, he had, had commander. The breaking ball was good, sharp. You know, slot was sharp. And it's, you know, when, when you have to, when you have to face him, and all of a sudden, you, you know, he's got that, that good slider working, um, makes his fastball that much better. So, I mean, he had uh, he had a good sl- good slider today working. Um, he threw a couple of changes that were really really good too. So, um, but you know, when he's when he's around the strike zone, he pounds that strike zone. He's tough. Hey, Adley doesn't chase Montour straight that much. He gets him to chase twice on two breaking balls in that first at-bat. What's that tell you about that pitch for Mackenzie? It's good. Like I said, it's good. But, you know, what makes that pitch so good is his fastball. He's throwing 95, 96. You know, he's throwing the ball in. He's got a little run. Um, now you got to cheat a little bit to get to it. So, you know, you know and then he drops, that, he drops that slider. It's really good. I mean, it's got late, late – it's a really late break. It looks like a fastball till the end. Um, when, when, he's, when he's throwing it and throwing it down, he's, he's, he, I mean, he's got really good stuff. Yes, he does. Uh, I am liking what we're seeing from Mackenzie Gore. Uh, he, in this regular season now, has made four starts. His ERA is 343. His strikeouts per nine innings is 10.71. That's awesome. Uh, now, he does need to get the walks under control. His walks per nine innings is six. Uh, way too many walks. But overall, he is looking like a guy who could be an ace for the Nats. Uh, by the way, this was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Wednesday night on Mackenzie Gore's walks. 
No, I think I think for me sometimes it, you know he, he starts speeding up, you know, and he's just got, he's got to slow himself down. Um, when he does that, you know, you saw he come out in the last two innings and he, and he had a really good pace. I mean, he's working quick, but yet under control. I think he needs to understand that that's who he is. Yeah, uh, the Nats bullpen on Wednesday night was fine. Three Nats relievers combined to allow one run unearned in three innings. Anthony Banda, a perfect top of the seventh. Thaddeus Ward, a perfect top of the eighth with two strikeouts. He looked good. And Hobie Harris in the top of the ninth allowed an unearned run. Uh, As for this game from an Orioles perspective, well, they now have won seven of their last nine games and now are 11 and seven as the O's on Wednesday night. Joe Angel, we're back in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe, the win column. And welcome back, Kyle Bradish. Uh, he was good in his return from the 15-day injured list. Uh, the O's on Wednesday afternoon activated Bradish from the 15-day IL, which he had been on since April 5th, retroactive to April 4th due to a right foot contusion. And Bradish in this 4-0 win at the Nats on Wednesday night was terrific. Six scoreless innings with six strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up five hits, a double, and four singles. He threw 92 pitches, 59 strikes versus 33 balls. You know, Bradish basically is beginning his season. He had a 2-0 win at the Texas Rangers on April 3rd, made his 2023 regular season debut, but he lasted for just one and two-thirds innings. He tossed one and two-thirds scoreless innings with two strikeouts, but he, in the bottom of the second, suffered the right foot contusion. Uh, good work from the Orioles bullpen on Wednesday night. Four Orioles relievers, Brian Baker, CNL Perez, Yanira Cano, and Mike Bauman combined for three scoreless innings with five strikeouts. Uh, the O's on Wednesday night only had four hits, but one of the hits was that two-run homer by second baseman Adam Frazier, who didn't even start the game. Uh, he came off the bench due to the Jorge Mateo injury, uh, and the O's on Wednesday night worked five walks. Uh, Both the Nats and the O's are off on Thursday. Uh, Next up for the Nats, a three-game series at the Minnesota Twins. Game one Friday night at 8-10, Trevor Williams will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game two Saturday afternoon at 2-10, Chad Cool will be the Nats starting pitcher. And game three Sunday afternoon at 2-10, Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. And next up for the O's, a three-game series against the Detroit Tigers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Game one Friday night at 7.05, Tyler Wells will be the Orioles starting pitcher. Game two Saturday night at 7.05, Kyle Gibson will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And game three Sunday afternoon at 1.35, Grayson Rodriguez will be the Orioles starting pitcher. Meantime, we on Wednesday got an update of sorts on the sale of the Nationals. Uh, Yes, as we are neck deep and talk about the sale of the Commanders, it is easy to forget that the Nats are for sale, or at least were for sale. Uh, We on April 11th, 2022 learned that the learners had begun exploring selling the Nats. But the sale process has not gone well, and the widespread belief is that the sale process has not gone well due to the Masson dispute with the idea being that nobody wants to pay for the Nats what the learners want to get for the Nats without having more certainty regarding the team's local television situation. Uh, Local television money is a massive revenue source for major league teams. So poorly has the sale of the Nats gone that Sports Business Journal on March 29th reported that the sale process of the Nats has been paused through at least the 2023 season. Well, someone who has come up as a potential buyer of the Nats, is Capitals, Wizards, and Mystics owner, 
Ted Leonsis. Uh, Ted is the founder, chairman, principal partner, and chief executive of Monumental Sports and Entertainment, which owns the Caps, Wiz, Mystics, and other entities, including NBC Sports Washington. It is worth noting that the Nats managing principal owner, Mark Lerner, is a minority investor in Monumental Sports and Entertainment. Uh, The Washington Post last August 23rd reported that Monumental Sports and Entertainment had been granted access to the Nats' financial data, and the Washington Post on Wednesday afternoon reported of an actual offer that Ted Leonsis made to buy the Nats. Quote, Ted Leonsis offered more than $2 billion to buy the Washington Nationals from the Lerner family late last year, according to three people with knowledge of the situation. It's not clear whether the Lerners rejected the offer or simply did not respond to it, though one person with direct knowledge of the process says the two parties have remained in touch, end quote. Uh, The report also said that Ted expressed an interest in buying Masson. Uh, Two things to me off this report. Uh, Number one, the sale of the Nats essentially is the Masson dispute. Until that thing is resolved, or at least until the Nats have more certainty moving forward about their local television revenue, it is very hard to see anyone paying for the Nats what the learners want for the Nats. Uh, now, exactly how the mass and dispute gets resolved is complicated. Uh, maybe that happens if slash when the Angelos family, which owns the Orioles and Masson, sells the O's. Uh, Maybe the Madison dispute is resolved by someone overwhelming the Angelos family or whoever owns the O's with an offer to buy Madison or at least an offer to buy the Nats television rights. But, you know, this Madison dispute has been going on since 2012. The dispute is more than a decade old. It is very hard to see anyone buying the Nats for an appropriate price until the Nats have more certainty moving forward about their local television revenue. But point number two, it may well be that $2 billion is an appropriate price for the Nets. I mean, the Post report is that Ted Leonsis offered more than $2 billion to buy the Nats from the Lerner family. Understand, Forbes in March 2022 valued the Nats as being worth $2 billion, uh, making the Nats the 12th most valuable team in Major League Baseball. Forbes this past March valued the Nats as being worth $2 billion, uh, making the Nats the 16th most valuable team in MLB. Zero increase in the valuation of the Nats from 2022 to 2023. That's not the way that sports valuations are supposed to go. But if Ted Leonsis truly offered $2 billion for the Nats late last year, or a little more than $2 billion for the Nats late last year, and the learners rejected that or did not respond to that, uh, you know, I would say, hey, what exactly do you want given the situation? Now, we know the deal with the learners. They drive hard bargains. They are very disciplined at grinding out negotiations. Uh, It's part of why the family has had so much financial success. But, you know, you either want to sell the Nats or you don't. You're either in or you're out. And given the current climate, which includes this mass in dispute for which we have no idea when the end will ever come, a $2 billion offer for the Nats, if in fact that offer was made by Ted Leonsis, sure does seem pretty fair. Whether Ted would be a good or bad owner of the Nats 
different conversation. But if we are just assessing the fairness of a $2 billion offer for the Nats, who each of the last two years now have been valued by Forbes as being worth $2 billion, and who have this never-ending bass in dispute, uh, that does seem like a pretty fair offer. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 555. We'll provide you with more on the commanders as we on Thursday are due to have a pre-NFL draft press conference for head coach Rod Rivera and general manager Martin Mayhew, who presumably may have a thing or two to say about the sale of the Commanders. We shall see. Thursday could be a rather interesting day. Have a great rest of your Thursday, and I'll talk to you on Friday. My money comes from white people. White people. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but white okay. People. White people. Let, no, let me finish. Let yeah. me finish. White right, people <laughs> who are Jewish, who are Italian, who are Sicilian. White people. Right. And, and the NFL will find that out. It comes from white people. Those are my partners, white people. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.